Yeah. What, what about sizes? Are we worried about the logistics later? Yeah, I think at this point, I mean, I haven't had anybody really ask me for a pair of shoes. People are asking for um, really socks, hat, and, and gloves. Maybe as we connect with them, we can find those need, and we could do that as a follow-up. Like we find somebody who needs a pair of shoes, we could either go and get it, or we could um, go in the following few days or weeks and, and bring them something. Yeah. So the thing, too, about our ministry is, you know, and this is important for us, is just studying the early church and church, uh, the missions, the history of missions, we're studying the early church and how the church was known for certain things. And a few of them were they loved the Bible. They loved fellowship. They were at each other's houses and eating and fellowshipping. They were known for preaching on the streets. They were known for evangelism. And they were also known for loving others. But the thing is, is like when we love others, we want to draw them into the body. And meet their needs spiritually also. You know, um, so I mean, that's a great way. Like, we find that they need a pair of shoes, and we can also use that to continue to invest in their life. Like, I don't want to be a group of people that meets somebody's need once and then walks away and never sees or cares about them again, you know? Like, I would like, let people, let God put people on your hearts. And that's like a good thought for evangelism on Saturdays too, right? Like we go out there and we're handing out a little track or we're meeting a homeless person's need. But we need to allow God to put people on our heart because it could be that some of these people um, would be put in our hearts and we could invest in them. They might not come to church and that's okay. But they are still receiving the love of Christ through us. And it is amazing. I mean, and sometimes... You're never going to see them again, and that's okay too, because you planted a seed. But uh, let's open our Bibles today to Genesis chapter 4. And today I want to talk about the blood of Christ. I mean, it is communion. We had a song, you know, the fountain of blood. <laughs> Ryan and I were laughing <laughs> as he was singing that song. Ryan never heard that song until Josh sang it a few a few months ago. He never heard that song. So he heard that song and he thought it was like, I don't know, some like death metal, you know, song. It was like disgusting. And then he started listening to the words and he realized that's a nice Christian song. <laughs> so we were teasing him about it. <laughs> Genesis chapter 4 in verses 5 through 10. We have an amazing story here. You guys know this story. Um, but we're not going to approach it with familiarity. We're going to approach it with a freshness of the Spirit of God. So, it says, But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? You know, I love this, actually, this story. Because the way God deals with Cain is so special. He doesn't come out and punish Cain for bringing the wrong sacrifice. Because in the beginning, right, we read that part where Abel's sacrifice is accepted and Cain's is not. And the word that the Bible uses there is that 
that God had respect for Abel's sacrifice, and he didn't have respect for Cain's sacrifice. So because of this idea that God had respect and did not have respect, we can understand that somehow that Cain and Abel had an understanding of what God was expecting. Okay? God, they knew what God was expecting. And I love how God deals with Cain here. And it says in verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. The idea here in this verse is like, imagine you're going through a doorway. You ever like walk through a door at night? You can't see anything and you're walking through the door and there's like a dog at the doorway. <laughs> and if you're at a stranger's house, maybe that you startle the dog and the dog wakes up and starts barking at you. And if it's very vicious, it wants to bite you. That's the same idea here. It's like in our life, we are walking through these doors that God is opening and God is shutting. But at the same time, there is maybe through one of these doors that God, you know, that's there. And there is sin. It is lying there. and It desires to have us. It desires to devour us. So when we are walking over it and we startle it, it bites. You know, that's the idea that he is saying there. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So here's the question. Did Cain rule over sin? Or was he, <laughs> I like, or, or did it bite him? Did it have its desire, did sin have its desire fulfilled? It's amazing because God has designed us as children of God and as God's creation. You know, people who are unbelievers, they're not children of God, but they are still created in the image of God, and they are still designed to have authority over sin. But they don't because they are, their desires, sin has their desires fulfilled in their lives because they have no respect for the sacrifice that God desires. Amazing. Very simple thought. That for us to have victory over sin, that we as people must have respect for the sacrifice that Christ has given. We're going to get there in a few minutes. And we'll have victory every time, every time. And the Lord said, okay. And he said, have you, um, verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said. And he, he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And the key thing I was thinking about in Genesis 4 was those last two verses. And the last verse again, it says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Hebrews 12, 24. 
And Jesus, who is Jesus? It says here, what is he? Messiah. He's the mediator. It says it right there. He's the mediator. There is somebody in, 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 that is in between us. There is somebody there. There is a mediator that we have. I love it. We have a mediator. Why do we need a mediator? Well, look at what happened to Cain. <laughs> you know, I love it. But think about this. The mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. I love that. To the blood and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So in the story of Abel in Genesis chapter 4, the blood of Cain, uh, Cain, what did it do? It cried. Two different things. And with Cain, it cried. And with Jesus, it speaks. I want to turn to two stories Let's turn to Leviticus. We're going we're gonna to go through our Bibles a lot today. And I don't apologize for that. <laughs> but when we talk about the sprinkling of blood, it is really mentioned two times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And this concept, and we're in the book of Hebrews, and it's written to the Jews, a group of Jewish believers, Okay. So for us to understand the importance of this verse, we also have to have an understanding of Jewish culture. And as Christians, we, we dive into it because we look at the Jewish culture and it kind of reveals to us the importance of our own walk with Jesus today. So in Leviticus chapter 16, there's, this is an amazing, amazing, amazing chapter and it correlates directly to Hebrews 12, Hebrews chapter 9, talking about the blood of Jesus. But just verse 14 and verse um, 16. And this is for the Day of Atonement. This is once a year that the Jews are making a sacrifice and they are atoning for their nation's sin. And you know what's amazing? Before the Day of Atonement could even happen... Aaron had to make a sacrifice for himself and present the sacrifice so he himself was clean before he even made a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And my understanding, and I, I can be corrected if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that Aaron's sacrifice was a bull. It was a bull. And then the nation's sacrifice was a goat. I mean, to me, that's just very interesting. Like, I would think it would be the other way around. Because Aaron is one person, so it's a smaller sacrifice. So you would sacrifice a goat, right? <laughs> and the nation of Israel is bigger, so you would have a bigger animal to sacrifice. But it was the other way around. Very interesting. But he would do this. And then what was required, it says in verse 14, it says, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it. And he did the same thing with the goats. And sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. So he had to put his fingers in this little bowl of blood and, you know, kind of go like this. And sprinkle it before the mercy seats. Before. And he did this 
you know, so the sacrifice, he's presenting the blood of the sacrifice before the mercy seat so that there could be, a, there could be redemption for Israel for the next year. And in verse 16, so, how, so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their sins and for all their transgressions. So the reason why Aaron had to do this for himself and then for the nation, and in verse 16, it says it very quick, but very simply, he did it for the atonement of Israel. Sprinkling. That's what I want to think about. The next time that it's mentioned is in Exodus chapter 12, and this is at the Passover. You guys know that story, right? How long was Israel in captivity? 40? More. They were in the desert for 40 years. That's good. How long were they in Egypt? 400. Yeah, they were Hebrew slaves, yeah. They were, in, they were in Egypt for 400 years, and they were slaves. And you know what's amazing? The same word is used that was used for Cain. It says that God heard the cry. It says it with Cain, and it says it here with, with the Jews. He heard their cry, and he remembered them. And that's when God went to Moses and called Moses to bring deliverance. But let me ask you something. Sin has a desire, doesn't it? Sin has a stronghold in our lives. Sin had a stronghold. And it's pictured here in the story in Exodus chapter 12 as Egypt and as Pharaoh ruling over the people of Israel. Because Pharaoh would not let them go. Pharaoh would not let them go. And what had to happen? Ten plagues for the Jews. There were ten miracles. <laughs> ten plagues. And after each miracle, after each plague, Pharaoh had something to say to God. No, your people can't go. And what in the beginning, what did Moses want to do with the Jews? Well, even more simple. In the beginning, he didn't even ask to let his people go. He asked, let us go out in the wilderness and worship God. Because they haven't worshipped God for close to 400 years. See, the sacrifice that Cain and Abel had in, in Genesis chapter 4 is directly related to their worship. So when Abel's sacrifice was not, or when Cain's sacrifice was not accepted, it was his worship also that was not accepted. So for 400 years, they weren't able to worship God. So all Moses asked is, let us go out into the wilderness and worship God. And Pharaoh says no. And Pharaoh says no. Sin had a strong desire. Evil had a strong, the world had a strong desire on the people of Israel. When they were in Egypt. And miracle came after miracle after miracle came. And there was still no deliverance. No deliverance. Sometimes in our own life we see miracles happen. God brings miracles and they happen daily. 
Miracles happen daily in our life, and it still brings no deliverance in my life from the way that I am living. You know, you would think after seeing a plague, I would say, okay, God, I'm paying attention. We met a guy on outreach yesterday, and I said, hey, do you know God? And he looks at me, he goes, oh, boy, do I. He says, when you're in the hospital and your doctor tells you you should be dead, but you're not, I said, I know the reason why I'm not. It's because of God. And he says, at that moment, I believed in God even more. One little miracle when he should have been dead, and he wasn't, and he believed in God. But sometimes we are so stubborn. We talk about the stubbornness of Israel, right, in the wilderness. But what about the stubbornness of Pharaoh? What about the stubbornness of sin? Sin's desire is so strong in my life that sometimes I don't have victory. Hey, David, could you go downstairs and check the door? I think I got a text. <laughs> I can't check it because of the, uh, the app. So. But sometimes sin's desire is so strong that, th- that they never have victory. And that is why people are stuck in prostitution and drinking and drugs and in their lifestyle. And you know what? And we can't look at them and say shame on them because some of our sin, though it is secret, it is still in our hearts and it limits our Worship with God. And in Exodus chapter 12, it says, And they shall take, verse 7 and verse 12 through 14, it says, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat in. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And against all the gods, listen to that, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Why? Did this death angel, why did this death come in Egypt? I love it. It's so clear. It's so clear. It was to execute judgments against the Egyptian gods. The Jews, they were in Israel. They weren't allowed to worship God for 400 years. But here are the Egyptians worshiping their God for all their lives. And God says, no more. You, your gods, and some scholars say, and you can study it, actually. It's, it's beautiful. Each plague is to go against one of the Egyptian deities. Each one of them is a direct attack against one of their deities. To say, your God has no power. Your God has no power. Your God has no power. And in the end, by the blood of Christ, I mean by the blood of the Lamb that is slain, right? They put on the doorpost, and then what happens? They are set free. They go out. And they are trials after trials in the wilderness. We know Pharaoh comes after, but God provides. There is hunger. God provides. There is lack of water. God provides. There is complaining. God provides. But the first and greatest miracle here is that God set them free, but it was through death. It was through death. 
in both instances we see that there is a dealing with sin and a dealing with false worship. So in, in the story of Cain and in the story of the first Passover, God is not only dealing with sin, but he's also dealing with false worship. So we go back to Cain. Why, why did he cry? Why, did, why was the blood crying out? This word here means, and every time this word is used in the Bible, it is used for the human expression of desperate need. Every time that word cry in the Hebrew is mentioned, it is us as humans crying out to God saying, there is a need. So the blood is crying out and saying, there is a need. In, 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 in Egypt, the Jews cry out, and what do they say? They say, there is a need. In Psalm 2, uh, 9, 12, it says, God does not forget the cry of the humble. And the cry of the humble says, you know, God, I am in desperate need. I need help now. I need, and we cry out to God, right? And we ask him for help. We ask him for help to pay the bills for this little thing, for that little thing, for this big thing. We seek the Lord and we are crying out to him, but is always used as an expression for our desperate need for God. And many people say that the blood here is crying out. It is crying not for justice, but it's crying for revenge. It's interesting with that story of Cain and Abel. He's crying for revenge. And you could think about the Jews, like what are they crying out for? They also could be crying out for justice or for revenge to happen so that they that way they could once again be a nation uh, under the rule of God and not under the rule of Pharaoh. They are crying for revenge. But look at that in Hebrews chapter two, 12, verse 24. The blood of Jesus does not cry out in desperate need. It is two different words. Even in the Septuagint, that word in Hebrews 12, 24 is not the same word as it is in Genesis 4. It is a different word because God's blood, God himself, is not crying out in desperate need. He's not crying out for justice. He's not crying out for revenge. And Jesus dying on the cross, you would think he would be, right? God, revenge me. They're killing me. And it says at any moment he could, have cried, he could have called down a legion of angels to come in and take them away. But he did not. Because his blood wasn't crying, it was speaking. This word speak here, it is only used twice. It is only used twice in the New Testament, this word speaking. And here it is in the blood of Christ. This is amazing. The blood of Christ, a little bit of Greek, Greek grammar here. But the blood of Christ, it says that it continually speaks. See, sometimes we cry out in desperation. Do we continually cry out in desperation? I mean, sometimes the only time we cry out to God is when we're in desperation. And God brings a miracle and we're okay. And then we stop crying out to God. But the blood of Christ continually speaks. Okay, it continually speaks. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, it says here what 
the word, the, what the blood of Christ speaks. It says, elects according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 1 Peter 1 2, in sanctification of the Spirit, the obedience and sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So what is the grace, what is, what is the blood of Christ speaking? This is more than just a simple greeting to Peter's opening letter that he is writing. It's more than just a simple greeting. But in here, in the context, and in, in the way that the word is ordered, it is saying here that the blood is speaking, grace and peace can be multiplied to you. Grace and peace can be multiplied in your life. Isn't that so different than revenge and justice? Yes. It is so different. It is so different than revenge. It is so different than justice. God is saying that when you accept the blood of Jesus Christ, when it is sprinkled on the doors of your hearts, that there's going to be something that is multiplied in your life. It is going to be peace and it is going to be grace. This peace isn't like the prosperity gospel, right, Captain Ron. It isn't a freedom from disturbance you know, in my community or in my individual life, but it is a freedom and disturbance in my soul, that my soul is no longer disturbed. So in the, in the first century church, as the Christians are being persecuted, as they're being burnt to the stake, fed to lions, and dying on crosses, they had peace. Story after story in Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read miracle of them singing. Of them not, I mean, one story we read in class the other night, it says that this lady was burned, and for three days they kept the fire burning in the house. They burned the house down. For three days they kept the fire burning, and they continued to hear her sing for three days. They let the fire stop. They go in, and they find her alive. I'm looking to make sure there's no kids in here. And then they take the axe, a sword, and they cut they, three times at her head and still doesn't die. <laughs> miracle after miracle after miracle. And what is happening is that in their lives, not in their community, not in their personal well-being, but in their soul, they are free. They are free from disturbances. They are, they are free. They are at rest in their soul with God. Peace has been multiplied. And this word grace, we talk a lot about this word grace, don't we? And I was thinking about it today. Like, how do we talk about grace being multiplied in a fresh way? You know, I came across, across these two definitions. Grace includes God's personal attitude of love and care toward the believer. Isn't that amazing? Grace includes God's personal attitude of love and care toward the believer, and because of that, making all the provisions needed to live a godly life available to the believer. The grace of God, it is being multiplied. It means that God has an attitude towards you. We talked about that a few Thursday nights ago. Right, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, the way God thinks towards you. God has a thought 
towards you. God has an attitude towards you, and it is an attitude of grace where he desires to bring you all the things that you need in your life to live a godly life. Are the commandments of the Lord grievous, the Bible says? If they're grievous, it's because you're not receiving the grace of God. You're not receiving his authority. One more definition I read about grace is grace deals with the believer's need in his relationship with God. Grace deals with the believer's need in his relationship towards God. Go back to that story with Cain and his offering. It says that God did not respect Cain's offering. There wasn't immediate judgments from God, was there? And in that conversation, what is happening? It is grace, actually. Because what God is doing is he's supplying Cain with what he needs to live a godly life. God is bringing something and it's what he needs to live a godly life. Let me tell you guys today that God is giving you, he has given you everything you need to live a godly life. He has given you everything that he needs, that you need to walk with him. And more. And more. I think about it, maybe some people here were talking about Egypt maybe, right? And could we go? And I'm thinking after you know, hearing this testimony, I'm like, we should go. Yeah, let's go to Egypt. But we could think, how could, this, how could I go to Egypt? How could I be a missionary? How could I do this? And it could be that you can't. But if you let the multiplying of God's grace and peace happen in your life, then you find that God has given you everything you need to do what he has asked you to do. He's given you everything you need to say no to sin, to desires of sin. He's given you everything you need to have to help your marriage to grow, to help your children to grow up in a good home, to help your job. He's given you everything that you need. And if you don't have it, it's because you don't need it. And if there is persecution happening, because it happens, right? There is no grace for you to overcome. Then there is peace for you to abide. Because sometimes in our situations, we aren't given grace to overcome, but God gives us peace to abide. I think about some marriages and stories that I've heard about some marriages and the wife abiding. <laughs> and my, if I were to counsel her, I would tell her, don't do that, you know. You know, leave. It's abusive. You know, and, and we'll get you a hotel. <laughs> you know, it's okay to get a divorce here. I mean, you are being beaten. Don't do that. Don't stay there. But the one story I heard is that she abided. She was there. God gave her grace. God gave her peace for it. In the end of the story, you know, he gets saved. And, you know, it's interesting. And I'm not here to say anything or give any kind of advice in that direction. But I am here to say that sometimes in our life, it seems like we don't have a victorious Christian life. And it's simply because maybe we aren't meant to be victorious in this area, but we're meant to have abiding peace. For God to help us to stay in this place, to be a light in darkness, and to be ourselves 
a, a mediator for them because without us, there is nobody. You know, soul winning last night, a guy, I mean, he was so high, right, David? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he was so high. But, you know, what? I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm going to sit here, give him a track, and I'm going to share the gospel with him. And maybe when he comes through, the Holy Spirit could speak to him. And he could, we were, you know, we were ambassadors. We were, in one way, we were a mediator. I love it. But Christ was coming to him, giving him the grace that he needed, and it is multiplying. You know, in, in closing, I'm going a little long here. But I'm thinking about this word multiplied that is being used in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. The interesting thing about this word, it's not used often in the New Testament, but it means that it is Peter's wish that grace and peace might be multiplied in your life. It's his wish. But the Greek word actually says that it's my wish that this happens, but it probably will not happen. It's kind of sad, actually, isn't it? Peter says to who he's writing, I wish that grace and peace will be multiplied in your life, but I don't expect it to happen. Why would the grace and peace of God not be multiplied in my life? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yes. Captain Ron's preaching next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amen. Hey, guys, this is good. Thank you, Ron. Yeah, this isn't a library, guys, so it's okay. You know, when I ask questions for you to talk like Ron is, it's okay to say amen every now and then. It's okay, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I want, to, I want to boil it down to even more simple. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, it tells us the reason why grace may not be multiplied. And he is right, and that is part of the answer. But in verse 25 it says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. And it continues, for if they do not escape who refuse him who spoke on the earth, much more shall he not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. You know, that word there, I mean, to me, that is amazing. And it, and it boils it down, refuse him, refuse not him who speaks. What is speaking here? I mean, in verse 24, what is speaking? 
blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is speaking. Do not refuse it. Do not refuse the blood of Christ. I mean, I was reading, you know, commentaries and studying books, and there were some people that were looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 and saying that this is a call for us to be holy, that there is obedience. But in 1 Peter 1, 2, what becomes before our obedience? Our sanctification. Our sanctification is part of our positional truth. So from our positional truth, there is obedience. And then it goes down. What comes before the next action that we are called to have? I think it's worship. It is the blood of Christ. Every time that there is a call to action or a call to works, like Ron is saying, it is always, you know, comes just after the provision of God. So in my life, if I refuse, if I denounce, if I don't allow the the blood of Christ to have its way in my life, then I am not allowing the grace and the peace of God to be multiplied in my life. Cain did not allow the blood. He did not allow it. He refused it. He denounced it. And he allowed sin to have its desire. In Egypt, you could imagine that maybe there were a few Jews who did not have the blood on the doorposts. And what happens? Judgment came. But on the other side, think about some of the Egyptians who were in the right house. (laughs) Hey, you guys are having a party over there. Can I come over and eat some of that lamb with you guys? And who was saved? They were saved. And I love this thought that if I do not refuse, if I do not denounce the, if the blood of Christ, then I'm allowing the grace of God to be multiplied in my life. This is not a prosperity gospel, but this is a gospel where in my soul that I am allowed to prosper in my soul. I'm allowed to walk with God. I'm allowed to have victory over the desire of sin in my life because of the blood of Jesus. And that is, the, that is the only reason why we are standing here today is because we have not refused the blood of Christ that speaks. We have not refused the blood of Christ that speaks. So you are saved today. But my question to you is, are you living in, in our ministry? We have these two terms. We have common grace, right? And we have manifold grace. Am I satisfied as a believer to live in common grace? You know, some some people call it, I'm going to heaven by the skin of my teeth. That's a terrible, terrible theology, but the idea is like you're just barely getting into heaven, right? You're saved. You responded to the blood of Christ that is speaking. But you haven't allowed the manifold grace of God to come into your life because you don't allow it. Remember in Hebrews 12, 24, the blood of Christ continues to speak. The blood of Christ continues to speak. In our life, let's stop crying to God in in that definition that we had. 
God help, God help. Okay. Yeah. God help me, God help me. Oh, now I'm good, so forget about you, God. Like, let's get rid of that. And let's allow the blood of Christ to continue to speak in my life so I can continue to experience the manifold grace of God. Amen.